Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. Yeah, good morning. How are you? Well, I hope you're doing well this morning and uh, just enjoying uh, life in the Lord. Look at that new little baby over there. Call me baby. Oh, my goodness. Baby's everywhere around here today. Seen lots of little ones this morning and uh, getting to meet them. That's, that's cool. Hey, um, one of the things that I, there are many, but one of the things I love about this book is it is rooted in reality. It, it was written uh, in the context of human history, and we see it kind of lived out and unfolding that way. Um, you know, I think sometimes for some folks, there's this tendency to think that the stuff in the Bible, you know, because it happened so long ago and, you know, in a land far, far away, that uh, sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect that it's not connected to our lives today. Uh, one of the things that I find that combats that in my life is being able to study uh, biblical archaeology. You know, when you have a chance to read about uh, maybe a new discovery or something like that, it, it, it takes, the, you know, the words off this page and it combines it with something that's going on in reality, something we can see and touch that helps, it helps me. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. One of the, the experiences in my life that I'm grateful for is having been uh, blessed with uh, being able to go over into the Holy Land and tour uh, some of the sites and, and, and places where our Lord Jesus walked. And it just brought so much of that into a, a, a great reality, being able to kind of tour the, the city of Jerusalem, got to see some of the things uh, that we talk about, that we read about. Um, I want to share with you a picture that is a real-life picture. Well, I guess it's not live. It's a picture. But it was taken (laughs) of a real-life place. And this is in Jerusalem. You see the lady that's standing on the wall there. This part of the wall has been dated to the date of Nehemiah. Now, you know, obviously there are going to be people who argue about that. People argue about everything. Um, But most archaeologists that, you know... Uh, are, are certified, if you would, believe that this actual section of the wall is part of what Nehemiah built. And it's cool to me that you can go there, you can see it, you can touch it, you can, you can stand on it, especially in the context of some of what we, we look at today. It just for me, it makes this book come to life to kind of be able to see uh, some of those things and to remind us that this happened to real people in a real place uh, in, in real time. Now, we're nearing the end of our study of the book of Nehemiah. In fact, God willing, we are going to get through two chapters today, chapters 11 and 12. And I, I saw a couple of you smile at that, and I saw maybe one or two of you pick up your phone and think, okay, I'm going to go ahead and order lunch and have it delivered here. Um, we, it, it's not going to come to that. You know, I, I, I don't believe that. We did it okay in the, in the first service. Next, next Sunday... Um, we're, uh, we're going to end our time in Nehemiah in, uh, in the 13th chapter. But as we, you know, we walk through, when we walk through a book of the Bible um, and do it the way we've done it in Nehemiah and kind of, kind of chapter by chapter, some, some days verse by verse, just walking through, you know, one of the goals that I hope for, I pray into uh, every time we get together on, on, a, on a Lord's Day is I, I pray that you leave here somehow challenged, um, maybe inspired, if you would, to, to, to kind of get after it, to, to seek the Lord, to uh, follow a- after Jesus, to, to connect with him. But one of the other goals that I also have is to help you connect with this book, um, to go through the content uh, 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 of this book so that, one, that you'll have a greater understanding of it, um, maybe a greater love for it, uh, and hopefully then that will spill over to a greater understanding of and a, and a deeper love for the author of this book, God himself. And so, uh, so some days there's this tension between, you know, thinking about, okay, are we going to kind of do the education thing, the inspiration thing, you know, that, that kind of thing. 
Um, today, there's a little bit of a challenge in what we, what we cover today. Um, you know, sometimes there's this desire to only kind of walk through the parts of this book that kind of preach themselves, that are kind of action, you know, that would just push you forward, that are easy to kind of talk out of because it's just so, so, so clearly visible. But part of what I want for you, and so part of what I have to do is I, I want you to be I want you to fall in love with the whole counsel of God. And so that means from time to time, I'm going to step into places that are a little, little more difficult, uh, may not be quite as inspiring, if, uh, if you would. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we're not going to lose that today, however. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at chapters 11 and 12. And th- this morning, it's kind of, kind of two-sectioned in my thinking. The first section basically runs from chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 26. And what you're going to, what I see is in chapter 11, the first two verses, there's a lot of action. A lot of action. And then um, <laughs> all of chapter 11 and then the first part of chapter 12 are, are the details explaining those two verses of action, kind of how it, how it pressed out. So we'll, we'll look at that uh, now, if you would. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to Nehemiah chapter 11. Uh, if you haven't already, we're going to read from verse 1. It's also going to come up on the screen. It says this, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Stop there for just a second. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Now even though the, the city walls had been rebuilt, about the only people that were living there were, were the leaders. And they ran into a, a, a problem. The, the city was underpopulated. It needed to be repopulated with people. You know, they, the, the wall had been rebuilt. They, they've got this really cool infrastructure system in place now. And uh, it, it's supposed to be more secure. But the people were not flocking to the city. The only ones that were really there were, were, were the leaders, if you would. And in order for a city to survive... People have to, to live in the city. But there, there are some reasons people didn't want to live in the city. One, it, it was a little dangerous living in the city because everybody knew that if marauding armies kind of came to attack, where were they going to go? They're going to make a beeline for the city. They're going to attack the city. That's where you know, wealth would be. That's where leaders would be. That's where the resources would be. So in some ways, it was a little bit dangerous to, to live in the city. I mean, think about it. You know, most of us, when we think about if a terrorist attack were to come, it would probably, you know, in our region, it would probably be something like Charleston or Charlotte or something like that. Terrorists just aren't usually known to, you know, head for Monk's Corner. Um, that, that's not kind of their, their target normally. They think, you know, a bigger city something like So it was dangerous to, to kind of live in the city. And, you know, we, we, we kind of understand that when we compare it to this. The other issue that they were facing was... Um, in that day, it was an agrarian culture. And so their livelihood was tied to land. More land you had, the more you could produce. Uh, you know, the more crops you could grow, the more livestock you could sustain. And so if you lived in the city, you know, you had to have somebody else kind of deal with all that for you, cultivate it, you know. And, and so it, it really was um, problematic, if you would, for your financial portfolio. So it wasn't the securest of places, and it challenged you maybe financially. It might have been considered financial suicide. But remember, by the grace of God, they had miraculously, in 52 days, rebuilt that wall. And now they've got this problem. I want to finish reading verse 1 out. It says this. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in their own town. So here's what happened. Nobody wanted to move in the city. They put out a call. Hey, we need some people to move in the city. Nobody come. You know, well, some will come. We'll see that in a minute, verse 2. But at, at first, there wasn't this great movement. And so here's what had to happen. They had to populate the city for the good of the city, for the good of God's people, uh, that's where th- their temple worship and all took place, so it, it had to thrive. And so here's what happened. They drew straws. And if you got the short straw, you had to go live in the city. I mean, that was basically what happened. They, they cast lots, they drew straws. It was a random thing, so that one out of every ten people had to, to go. 
And so, so they did. But I want you to look now with me at, at, at verse 2, because something really incredible happens in, in, in verse 2. It says, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So you've got two things going on here. One is that they, at some point when they put out a call, there were people that stepped up and said, I'll go. This is important. This matters. This is about the purposes of God for God's people. And so I'll step up. When they still didn't have enough, that's when they went to the short straw system. But there were these, this moment in time where people said, I, I, I'll sacrifice. I, 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 I'll go. These were people who put their, God's priorities over their own personal comforts. You know, it reminded me of an encounter um, of a great prophet Isaiah had when he was a young man. He was, he was kind of captured by a vision in the presence of God. And in chapter 6 of verse 8, it says, Isaiah said this. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord. So he heard God's voice saying this. He said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I love that we see the Trinity, our triune God showing up here in Isaiah. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, me. Send me, I'll, I'll go. See, one of, one of the beautiful things about when somebody puts the priorities of God above their own, above their own personal desires, above their own wants and wishes, just like here in Nehemiah, people will notice. Did you notice that it said in verse 2 that people bless them? People went, oh, thank you. That's incredible that you were stirred to, to sacrifice at that level. And it just it points out something to me that I want to point out to you today. And it's this. Personal sacrifice for God opens hearts and eyes. It opens people's eyes. It opens their hearts to the things of God. People look at that and say, okay, this, this matters. And it, it, it stirs people. It brings us along that somebody would be willing to make such a sacrifice. And as I was kind of walking through this this week, it caused me to kind of pause and think about who does that in our day? Who, who does that? And I thought about Brian Miller, who was on our stage a couple weeks ago. You know, there was a point in Brian's life where he, he sacrificed. He said, I'm going to leave the comforts of my family and friends, and uh, I'm going to go serve on the foreign mission field. I'm going to leave the comforts of the United States. I'm going to travel to a land. As far, and so, we, you know, we, we think about missionaries usually when we think in those terms. But then I, 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 I kind of dug down a little bit and I asked the question, what about here? What about here at River Bluff? And one of the thoughts that, that came to my mind were of so many of you, so many here, who, who serve behind the scenes and nobody really sees what's going on. One of the groups of servants that I thought about were our River Kids volunteers. If you're a River Kid volunteer, would you raise your hand? Just stick it in the air like you just don't care. Yeah, wave it around. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now, now I, please, I know I'm about to get in trouble because when I start naming people, I leave people out and somebody's going to say, what about me? I'm including you, okay? If you serve behind the scenes and nobody really sees that like they do at our River Kids, you know, our, our, there, there, are, there are people who change your kids' butts. There's not a lot of personal gain that comes out of that. It, it's not really to their, but they do it. They just serve behind the scenes, sacrificing so that parents could maybe come and, and not be distracted by the smell of that you know it gets taken care of by people who love your kids and you're able to come and gather and worship and and, and kind of engage in God's word and experience the presence of God because somebody is behind the scenes doing that oh and our our river kids team leader if you if you've never met Michelle you've you've been you've been chided She's just a, a, a person of great joy. She, this past week, celebrated her 18th year of serving at River Bluff as her, yeah, yeah. When you, when you see her, tell her thank you. Just pause and thank her. Just bless her like, like they did in Nehemiah, the people who were willing to step up and serve in, in ways. You know, I, I, I thought about, I, I watched this actually the week before and then again this week. Um, we had some technical difficulties at the end of one of our services. Basically, our sound system went down. 
And it was a bit of a mystery, but they kind of narrowed it down to some, some underground wiring that we have. And Drew Telfer and, and Gary Weiss and John Miller came up one afternoon after work, and, and they pulled and tugged and yanked, and, and it just wouldn't come. And so they did the next best thing. If you were here last week, you noticed duct tape, which holds the world together, was running down our, you know, the, the carpet here the other day because they just had to get something in, and they got something temporarily in. But guess what? They came back again this past week, and they pulled and tugged till they got it. And then they ran new lines underground so that we could come and gather and have technology that works that helps us worship. They were behind the scenes. Nobody saw that. They were just up here serving, doing, using their skill set to bless us. And there are so many, you know, if you get here early enough to grab a cup of coffee, it did not miraculously appear. You know, somebody showed up early. Somebody even long beforehand made sure that coffee was going to be here and cups were going to be here and just all those things that go behind the scenes. And we need to bless those folks. And, and so I just want to say, I, I, I didn't name you and your ministry, and I know that, and I, I'm sorry, I, I, but thank you. Thank you for those who serve behind the scenes, who raise your hand and say, here am I. Send me. I'll go to that place that you know nobody else wants to go I'll go do that and they they did that in Nehemiah's day and it stirred the hearts of God's people they noticed they 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 they, they it, it it changed them it stirred it, it rolled over them and it did something in them they wanted to they wanted to give give honor in, in that community and as God's people we need to we need to be a, a, about that as well you know, I, just, just bless, because one of the reasons we need to bless, especially those who serve behind the scenes in some of the unglamorous ministries of our church, is because it shows us, it displays the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus left the glamour, if you would, of heaven, the beauty, the splendor, the glory of heaven to come down here to a broken planet. To bless us, to come, to come near to us. He he left that that place, and he's the light of the world. The Bible tells us, but he came down here, and it it wasn't glorious living for him down here. It was hard. It was difficult. But Jesus said, "I'll go, Father. I, I'll go." And you know what he says to us as his followers? Look at this from Matthew chapter five, verse sixteen. He, he he's the light of the world. Remember, he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let, let your light live a certain way so that they may see your good works. So you got to do those good works. Um, and, and that out of that, they'll give glory to God who's in heaven. This, this act of service. The apostle Paul wrote to the church at, at Corinth about their ministry of sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, he says, As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. Friends, when you sacrifice... For the service of God and his purposes, people notice, eyes get open, hearts get open. Others think, I, I could do something like that. God, what are, you, what are you calling me to do? And then from verse 3, basically on, we start noticing these sections in Scripture of names of people. And so verse, verse 3 through about verse 24, 25 um, it's the name, it names the people who, who moved into the city. Some of the leaders who live there are now people, you know, some of those who volunteered and then those short straw people. Can I just say something? Be a hand raiser, not a short straw person. Don't, don't wait to draw the short straw. Step up. You know, when opportunities to serve the king, step up. Don't, don't wait until it kind of gets you know, forced upon you in some ways. But then, then verses 26 through 36 tell you about name, names people who are living out in the villages, around about the, the city and the country. And then you get to chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, and there's the naming of the priests and, and, and the Levites. But then we get to verse 27, and the action picks back up. And I believe it's a continuation a little bit. I believe it's a catalyst or, or the result of a catalyst that took place back in verse 2 when people's attention was captured by people who made sacrifice. 
I, I can't prove this. A couple commentators mentioned, mentioned it, but I, I, I believe it, that that sacrifice stirred something in people. It stirred their hearts towards, towards God and caused people to want to worship him and connect with him. And so we pick up in chapter 12, verse 27, and we read this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. Now, some of you will remember back in chapters 8 and 9, there was this kind of great revival that broke out. There was this, uh, the people consecrated themselves, separated themselves. They, some of them, for the very first time in their lives, heard the word of God. Some of them had not heard the word of God read for decades because they'd been in foreign captivity. And now they're back in their land, and there's this incredible season that breaks out in chapters 8 and chapter 9. They're worshiping God. They have this week-long celebration, the festival of booths, just incredible things that are going on. It leads them to, to confess and repent, and just beautiful things happen. And then last week we looked in chapter 10. It caused them to, to separate, to consecrate themselves through the act of making, making a, a, a covenant. And, and they, they did this. And so they're coming to this moment in time. They, they had, in, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, they had dedicated themselves, basically. But what hadn't happened, they had never dedicated the wall. They had never taken the time to kind of praise God for what happened uh, in, in that moment. And so they're going to dedicate uh, this wall. Now, why was that important? Why do you think it was so important to have a, a ceremony, if you would, a special time publicly to dedicate this for, for it, it, its special purpose. You know, part of what we did uh, last Sunday was we took a moment out of our service to recognize, um, to dedicate, to set apart, that's what dedication means. Uh, elders came and laid hands on four men who um, have dedicated themselves to the service of deacons at River Bluff. They, they, they heard the call of God and they were, they were set apart. And we did it publicly. Why? Why, why? why, if these men knew that they were called by God and the church family kind of said, yep, we agree, we think they're called by God to do this, why did we need to take time to, 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 to stop, if you would, and dedicate them for, for this purpose? Why did we need a public ceremony? Well, here's why. And this is what Nehemiah teaches me. There are moments in time where, where we need to pause and, and dedicate publicly to the Lord because in that moment it marks something and it reminds us of all the joy that we have in the Lord. One of the things that doing what we did last week does for me is it reminds me of so many who are serving around here that we've already talked about. It, it causes me to stop and reflect on the, the people growing and transforming and surrendering and making new covenants to God. And we need to delight in that. We need to take joy in that because what that means is that could be true for me too. Uh, if it could work for them, it could be true for me too. And so we need to stop and, and celebrate and do that because what it does in our hearts is it gives us hope that I can be transforming in the Lord too. God could use me, he, he, could, he could build me up there. And so the other part of this that's so striking to me is this dedication, the reason they had to do it, friends, it had been a hundred years in the making. The walls had been torn down for a hundred years and there had been effort after effort after effort to try to rebuild them, never happened. And then miraculously, with the power of God, even while under attack from, from, from foreign, you know, not really so much armies, but just people who wanted to attack, the, uh, harassers, if you would. In 52 days, they rebuilt these walls that had taken 100 years to rebuild. And ha they had not been successful. God gave them strength. And they needed to stop, and they needed to thank God, and they needed to dedicate these walls for the purposes uh, of God's good pleasure. And God's people did that. They did that. Now, I, I don't know. This is one of the things that kind of made me think about this week. I don't know if you realize it, but every Sunday when we gather, it's, it's a dedication. We, we have an opportunity to kind of rededicate ourselves to, to something that every week we should celebrate. Do, do you know why Christians gather on the first day of the week? Because it points back to the greatest moment in human history. The day that Jesus came out of that grave. 
It, it marks for us the, the, the death, the burial, but the resurrection of Jesus, which is a promise to any who follow him, it can be true for us too. And so every, every Sunday is, is known as, as the Lord's Day. See, the, the Bible tells us that we were all under an eternal judgment, that we were all destined for an eternal death, a separation from God, but Jesus stepped in to rescue us. And he, he, he paid that penalty that we couldn't pay. He died the death we should have died so that we could be set free, so that we could have our own resurrection in him one day. And so that's one of the things as we're thinking about, you know, the, the, this dedicating of the walls. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day is an opportunity for us to, to dedicate ourselves to, to the work of the Lord. And that's one of the things we need to do when we gather corporately. It needs to be a part of our corporate worship. It's understanding that what we're doing again today is we're dedicating ourselves. We're dedicating ourselves to the Lord. That's what corporate worship is about. And there are some essentials for corporate worship that I find in, in the remaining parts of, of Nehemiah chapter 12 that I just wanna, I want us to walk through together and look at why we, why we do these things in corporate worship and what we need for corporate worship to happen. Well, the first thing I see in this account from Nehemiah uh, out of corporate worship is this. Rich corporate worship needs some organization. It takes some organization. What, what happens up here when these folks lead us, did not just occur. It, it wasn't like some people just were standing out there and said, ah, oh, there's a guitar. I'll go pick that up and see what happens. Thank God that's not how things happen. You know, um, It's not an act of discovery. It's an act of organization. People, people worked this past week, early in the week, to to pray through and think about and, 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 and look at what songs would work together. What, how, do we, how do we organize and structure? And then th those folks come up and they sacrifice Thursday evening, maybe even before trying to make sure equipment's running right. And, and then they come up early on Sunday morning and they, they, they rehearse again and, and, and go over details of all kinds of, of things that you and I can't, can't really imagine. There's organization that's going on. Look, look at verse 27 and 28 with me. It says in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places uh, to bring them to Jerusalem. Somebody went out and said, hey, Levites, we're going to have this dedication service. We're going to have this day where we're going to celebrate. Y'all come. And then verse 28 says, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages. They went out and they got the singers. They pulled them in. Jump down to verse 31. It says, and then Nehemiah says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs. So they got the singers and the Levites and everybody, and they said, we're going to have two choirs today. Two choirs. We've got a big enough stage. We're going to do two choirs today. We'll put some over here and, 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 and some over there. And I want you to look at what it says. It says, one went to the south on the wall. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And it, and it, it says, and I followed them with half the people on the wall. So Nehemiah is following with half the people on the wall. Look at verse 43. It says, and they offered great sacrifices that day. You know where those sacrifices took place at? At the temple. So imagine with me, let me just, you just put on your sanctified imagination for a moment. There was this organization that, that was taking place, you know, just like there's organization that's required when, when we gather. And they, they went out on these walls, these two choirs, one marching from the south going around, one marching heading north, and they meet at the temple. They, they, they meet at the temple. Friends, somebody organized that. It didn't just happen spontaneously. And, and dear friends, we are so blessed to have people that do that for us week in and week out so that we can show up and be blessed. That we can just kind of step into worship. Kyler and Gabby and our team of so many talented, gifted volunteers sacrifice so much just to, so that you and I can come in and, and, just, and just seamlessly worship. They, they're generous and they're sacrificial, and, and they do that. And so often it gets to be seamless, and we can just experience the presence of God and the beauty and joy of being together. We didn't, we didn't really do anything but just get to experience it, have it lavished on us. And it's so important that somebody's doing that. I, I remember years ago being at 
a conference with Christian leaders. And um, there were probably, I don't know, a couple. There may have been 18, 1,900 of us, maybe 2,000. And it was one of those conferences you go to, you break in these smaller groups and do some training, and then you come back together, and there's kind of like a big worship experience, and then the main speakers are there, some, you know, people really knock it out of the park kind of thing. And this one guy was just preaching his heart out, and it was a great message, and I just wanted to be with him in that message. But behind him on the screen was this thing going on. And what was happening is the word searching would pop up and there would be some dots that would go along and it would disappear. And then the word searching would come up again in a couple of minutes, dot, dot, dot. It went on through his whole message. And I wanted to be with the guy. He was pouring his heart out over the word of God. And all I could think was, somebody kill searching, you know? And it, it probably would have just taken a little bit of organization, maybe, a little bit of planning ahead, or somebody kind of noticing that kind of thing. Now, please hear me say this. Technology in church has its own set of demons. Amen? Just, it just has, there, there are special demons from hell that are assigned to technology these days. And so you can't always fix it in the moment, I know. But a lot of times you can plan some of that stuff out. You can work some of that stuff out. And I thank God for our team that works so diligently so that we can just come in and, and step into, into worship. Just, just enjoy the, the beauty of corporate worship. It involves some organization, some planning, some leading. A, a second essential ingredient that I see from this passage of Scripture is this, is that rich corporate worship needs, needs some consecration, some purification, we need, all of us need to be involved in that. Look at verse 30 in your text. It says, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves. Now, notice the next one. You know, people think, yeah, those leaders, they need to be doing that. But look at this. And they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Now, we're not given the exact details. I don't know whether they went back to Exodus 29 and looked like some of the purification rites uh, that, that are mentioned there for priests and Levites. Maybe they did. But I, I imagine it had some form of ceremonial washing before they, they went about leading this worship, some, some consecration, probably some confession, um, some sacrifice that, that took place. And friends, I just want to say to all of us, as we come into worship, one of the things that we need to do is, is we need to purify ourselves. We need to consecrate ourselves. And that means that we may need to pause and let the Holy Spirit just speak to us. We may need to, we need, may need to confess sin that we kind of drug in here with. Now, uh, get me, please hear me say this. I know that you have been ultimately purified from sin, capital S sin, that keeps you from the presence of God. But then there are sins that I commit during the week, and I, I want to kind of come into the presence of God with those. Friends, it won't work. We, we got to deal with our sins. How many of you are responsible for the garbage being taken out of your house? Who, who, who has garbage detail, okay? I have garbage detail at my house, okay? I am responsible every evening to get the smelly, stinky garbage out of our kitchen and into our outside receptacle, okay? That's one of the things I do. And then Tuesday nights, because the, big, the truck runs on Wednesday morning, I'm responsible on Tuesday nights to get the the, the big receptacle out to the road. And so that's part of my responsibilities. Well, every now and then, I'll have a meeting on Tuesday night that runs longer than anybody wants it to, um, who's in that meeting, and it's usually because of me. I'll just go ahead and confess that sin. Um, <laughs> it's usually because of me. And, um, and some of our elders are saying, yeah, you, you, you're right, boy. The, um, so uh, anyway, so sometimes I don't feel like taking the trash out after that, or I forget uh, and, uh, and I go to bed, and every now and then, the truck beats me. Have you ever had the truck beat you, getting the trash out before? And then you got to go for a week with another pile of stinky smelling garbage, you know, and if it's August, it's worse, you know, and, you know, sometimes it gets so bad uh, that if you keep your receptacle, that outdoor receptacle near the back door, 
you know, your spouse may say, you got to do something with that. You got to get away from the door, you know. So you have to move it maybe in the middle of the yard or something like that. But anyway, um, it, it, it piles up and it's overflowing, you know, kind of thing. And in my house, I live kind of out in the woods a little bit. Raccoons love it when I miss the truck. They love it. And so to keep from having to clean it up again and again and again, I have a, cinder, I have a garbage can cinder block that stays near my, because this has happened more than once, and I will put that on the lid to keep that lid down so that stinky, smelly stuff doesn't, doesn't flow out because nobody likes the smell of that. We, we want it taken out because we can't stand the stench. Friends, our sins, when we gather for worship, leaves that unpleasant aroma in the nostrils of God. See, the Bible speaks of God experiencing our worship as a sweet aroma. But not so if we're not dealing with our sins. As we come, come into worship, we, we need to purify ourselves. We need to, to consecrate ourselves as we gather for, for cor- corporate worship so that the aroma in the nostrils of God are, are, is pleasing to him. And the Bible says when we do that, when we, when we take the trash of our lives out to God, it brings healing in our lives. And that God puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. We get our big receptacle dumped. And we're free. We're, we're unhindered. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in Ch- Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 talks about it this way. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It, 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 it binds us, it entangles us, and it stinks. And we need to let it be taken out. We need to go through purification. So rich corporate worship will involve some organization. It will involve me and you choosing to personally purify and consecrate ourselves. A third thing that corporate, great corporate worship involves is, is celebration. There needs to be some celebration going on. Look at verse 43. It says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard where? Around the corner? The neighbors next door? Far away. There, it, there, it was... It was so loud and people were celebrating. It was, it was just incredible. Two great choirs marching around, dancing, celebrating. I don't know if you'll remember, but if you go back to um, chapter 4, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 4, something like that, um, in Nehemiah, you remember there were some, uh, some guys that kind of heckled the people who were building the wall? One of them was named Tobiah. He was an Ammonite. And he made that statement back in... I think, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 4, verse 3. He made that statement, you guys are such sorry builders that even if a little tiny lightweight fox ran across the, your wall, the whole wall would fall down. What's going on on the walls today in what we're reading? Is that my alarm? Okay, I'll, where am I supposed to be? The, um, when th- there, there were two choirs of hundreds of people, men, women, and children, joyfully marching around celebrating the Lord. Walls didn't fall down. Because God had given them the strength to build these walls. And Ezra was leading one choir and Nehemiah was leading another choir. And, and, and they, were, they were just celebrating. Charles Swindoll, I think I recommended this book to you. It was one of the books that I, I read. Um, it's just part of preparation for the, this series. It's a great little book. Um, it's called Hand Me Another Brick. Uh, by Charles Swindoll. It's about the book of Nehemiah. And in it, he's talking about what we're seeing, the celebration that's taking place. And he writes these words. He said, you'll never convince me that all those women and kids stood at ramrod straight attention and walked in step like pallbearers, tight-lipped and straight-laced. He says, no, they got with it. It was sort of like a Jewish Disneyland parade, if I read this correctly. How many of you have ever seen the Disneyland Parade? I mean, it's celebrating, it's party, it's dancing, it's loud noise. It's, it's just this incredible, beautiful moment. These two choirs just celebrating on the wall, giving thanks for what, for what God had done. 
And verse 43 ends with that statement, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Friends, uh, my primary personality disposition is I'm a melancholy. And so I recharge best in quiet, kind of alone. There are other people who are sanguines, kind of the opposite of melancholy, who if you put them alone, they die. You know, they have, to, they have to get out among people. That's how they recharge and get life. And there's not right or wrong. It's just, it's different. So one of the things that I'm naturally drawn to is kind of contemplative, meditative worship. But I also love celebratory worship. And we all need to have moments of celebration in our lives like they're doing here in their, this corporate worship experience. We need some time of celebration to, to the Lord. Some theologians and commentators point to Psalm 126 as uh, being connected to what was going on that day. So I want to read Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3 to you. It says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. So these were, these were the ones that had been held in captivity. They've come back to Zion. We were like those who dreamed. It was like, oh my goodness, it was like a beautiful dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. So for all of us, there needs to be moments when we recognize how good God has been, how how incredible he is. You know, Brian Miller, who was with us a couple weeks ago, one of the things he said he he loved about worshiping with, with you was so many of you did seem to be filled with joy. There was a there was a joy there. But sometimes, for some people, it feels like corporate worship is the book of lamentations. They just, it, it, it's like, it, it, like it, it, there's no joy. There's no expression of joy. Listen to, to Psalm again, Psalms 150, about praising the Lord. It says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lyre and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Now, I am not going to name names And I'm not going to point anybody out. But we all, all of us can grow in experiencing the joy of the Lord in our worship. Every every last one of us. And here's what, here's one of the things I don't get. So many people can go to a football game and yell and shout and scream and be on their toes. Go to a, a concert. And get in it, man. Just get with it. And, and are, are just so into it. And, you know, go to a stingrays match and just bang their heads on the glass. And, you know, just get in it. And, um, but they come to worship. And don't even smile. I mean, just, just not even a smile. Now, again, I know that there are different... There are different personalities, and people have different levels of expressing themselves. And I'm not asking you to be somebody that you're not. But there does need to be some expression in all of us about celebration, about the goodness of God in our lives. There needs to be some level of that, some moments when our hearts are just drawn up in, in celebrating the goodness of God. It needs to be something that we regularly experience. Because there's great joy in, in, in serving the Lord. You know, we, we sang, uh, we started the service with the song, Oh, There's Nothing, Nothing Greater Than You. Do we believe that? Or is it just a song? Because I, I really think if we believed it, if we all believed it, that there was nothing greater than our Lord. It would cause us to to be stirred to celebrate. It would just stir our hearts to celebrate him, to be grateful for him, no matter what our circumstance was like. Now, I get sometimes you show up here, and it's been a bad week. But one of the great ways to overcome 
the pain and sorrow of this world is to rejoice in the Lord always. To rejoice in the Lord always. Is, is he greater? Is there nothing greater in your life than him? He is worth celebrating. A fourth component that I see in rich worship from this passage is this. Rich corporate worship has a goal. And that goal is this. God's inhabitation. God's inhabitation. Look again at verse 43 of chapter 12. It says, and they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced. And then look what it says. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Friends, God was there that day on that wall. And there, there, you know, there's been organization that's taken place. They had consecrated, purified themselves. Um, they, they, were, they started celebrating. They were just pouring out their love and their thanks to God. They were celebrating. They were dedicating the wall. They were dancing and singing and praising God. And while they were doing that celebrating, guess what God was doing? God was pouring into them joy. They were pouring their hearts out to God, and God was pouring his life into them. And that needs to be a goal of worship, is that we would get to experience God inhabiting our worship. There aren't many places where I prefer the King James translation of a passage of Scripture. But Psalms 22, verse 3, I do. King James translates it this way, but thou art holy... O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. See, we need to understand that God inhabits the praises of his people. Now, most English translations, modern English translations like ESV, they use the word, yet you were holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I, I like the word inhabit. It can be interpreted, uh, uh, translated either way. But I like the word inhabit more than I like the word uh, enthroned. Here's what Webster says inhabit means. It means to be present in or occupy in any manner or form. Enthroned, Webster defines this way, to seat in a place associated with a position of authority or influence. Inhabit has this sense of being present, that God being present with you. You know, you, you, could, go to, you could go to a foreign land where they have a king, and you could visit with that king maybe, but you might be in a big room and you may never get close to him proximally. You, you know, he, he might be up there on his throne and you have to sit way back in the nosebleed section. You can say, well, I see the king down there. But the truth of, of our God, he is, he is king of kings and lord of lords. But Jesus' half-brother was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this about, about our king about our Lord in James chapter 4, verse 8. It's not going to come up on the screen. You might write it down if you want to go back and look at it. But James 4, verse 8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God, he will draw near to you. It's not going to be a distant throne room experience. If, it is, if you want to go within throne, imagine that you get to run up to the throne with boldness. Think of it that way. But God, God's word says that he inhabits, he's enthroned, he's alive in the presence of his people. And so, so we need to do that. We need to, we need to celebrate, we need to engage and, because he deserves it. Not, this is, I think, one of the problems with the church today is we think we, we'll praise God, we'll celebrate if we get that warm, fuzzy feeling. You know? There was a song used to be, I'm hooked on a feeling. Get over it. You don't have to have a feeling to celebrate God. He is, he is great and mighty in all his ways. He's wonderful. He, he's incredible. And here's what this scripture that we're looking at tells me today. Is he loves. He loves to inhabit our praise. He loves to, as we pour ourselves out from him, pour himself into us. So that we can experience the joy of the Lord, which the Bible says is our strength. God did that that day, on that day of dedication. And see, as we think about it, as we bring this over into the New Testament and we think about what it's like to get to celebrate Jesus, what, all that he's done. You know, the Bible says about, about Jesus that everything, 
Everything that was ever created was created for him, by him, and, and, and through him. And that currently all of creation is being held together by Christ, by, by, by our Lord Jesus alone. Friends, that's, that's worth celebrating. And as we celebrate that reality, Jesus pours more of himself into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. Because he wants that. He desires that connection with you and with me. As we celebrate, he inhabits and we experience him. And so I want to pray for us that we kind of close out our service with that kind of experience of worshiping Christ alone, putting everything else away, everything else down, and just worshiping Christ and, and Christ alone. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we come to this moment. Lord, we, we come thinking about Maybe we need to pause for just a moment and think about that purification before we praise. Before we take a moment to celebrate. Maybe what we need to do is, is just consecrate ourselves once again. God, to bring to you right now from our heart, from our mind, God, the reality that I drug some sin in here this week. And God, I know that it that's not pleasing to you. And so, God, I confess it. Grateful, oh God, grateful, ready to celebrate this truth that, God, you forgive when we confess and you heal us and you put our sins as far as the east is from the west. Oh, Jesus, thank you. That makes me want to celebrate you, Jesus. I don't have to live with that. It, it's gone. I don't have to live with the shame of it or the guilt of it. It's taken out with the trash. Thank you, Jesus. So I want to come and celebrate you, God, and I want to celebrate you in a way that you long to inhabit my praise, my worship of you now, God. Jesus, we come, I come, realizing it's just about you, about you alone, that you are great and worthy to be praised, Jesus. You're, you are Christ. And in you, all the fullness of life is found. So we come in these moments to worship you and you alone. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.